Hey, long time no talk. It's Rob Fay, and welcome to a, uh, I guess you would call it a special edition of Sports Bar Radio. It's been a while. It is presented to you, as always, by Equity Guru. I wasn't expecting to do this. There's no bells, there's no whistles. Today, the greatest broadcaster in my lifetime passed away, and uh, Vin Scully passing away at the age of 94. I wanted to do something because I didn't think a tweet was you know, good enough to justify how I felt. I didn't know what to do, so I just felt like I would come on here and maybe share some stories, share some baseball stories, share some memories, and um, tell you why Vin Scully, for me, stood above the rest, as he did for so many uh, down in Los Angeles and, and maybe even around North America. When I started broadcasting baseball, I had a few favorites. Obviously, Tom Cheek and Jerry Howarth were on that list. Um, I loved Bob Costas. I loved Al Michaels. I mean, there were a lot of different voices from my childhood and even into my teens and young adult life that I, I really enjoyed. But there was no doubt about it that there was this one guy on the West Coast that was just a little bit different, a little smoother, and an incredible storyteller, and that was Vin. And what made it really even hard to comprehend is you just don't assume that people like that pass away and you know you'll always be able to hear his broadcasts and you know I don't know if I'll get this taken down because of copyright I don't know what but I'm gonna try and play you some things that were really driving forces for me when you know times were tough or even when things were good just you know his hall of fame speech when he got inducted back in 1982. Vin Scully was in the Hall of Fame in 1982, receiving the Ford C. Frick Award. And then, of course, his call when uh, Kirk Gibson hit a home run off of Dennis Eckersley, the improbable home run when a guy couldn't even stand up straight, and how Vin let the crowd do the work for, you know, a minute and a half, minute 40 seconds, and just the little nuances about what made him unique. And uh, I'm going to try to sprinkle those in. Again, if A, time permits, and B, um, if I don't get it taken down. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here, and they're not necessarily the most glamorous stories. I never got to meet Vin Scully in person, never crossed paths with him, but uh, just admired him from a distance. When you broadcast baseball, one of the biggest compliments that you can ever be paid is that you sound or, you know, you're Vancouver's Vin Scully, some people would tell me, and uh, obviously not. But I think the reason that they made the comparison was because Vin did a lot of the broadcasts in the later stages of his career by himself. It's a really hard thing to do in any sport, but it's near impossible to do in baseball. And I remember I started with the Vancouver Canadians back in 2007 in the broadcast role, and I had a few different guys that I worked with, Terry McKeg, Chris Pritchett, who for baseball was my favorite sidekick, uh, with no offense to anybody else. You know, I just look back at a moment when Jake Kerr, was walking out with me towards center field. Get this, the owner of the Vancouver Canadians getting ready for the annual team photo mid-season and came up to me and he goes, hey, let me ask you a question. I said, yeah, sure, Jake. He goes, you know, how do you feel about doing the broadcast by yourself? And so I was with Terry McKegg at the time and, you know, obviously I'm not going to want to throw anybody under the bus, but I said, you know, I'm good either way. And so Jake said something to me that was really interesting. He goes, well, I like you and Terry, but he says, I listen to you when you're on the road. And when you're on the road, you're by yourself. And he says, I think you're better when you're on the road. So I'd like you to find a way eventually to do this by yourself. And I want to say that was probably right around what, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. I can't even remember the actual year, but it ended up happening. 
And I just remember thinking to myself, well, how do I attack this on a regular basis now that there's, you know, Vancouver people listening? Because on the road, you were always just on the internet. You were streaming. But at home, you were on Team 1040, which then became TSN 1040, which eventually became Sportsnet 650. I was intimidated. And that's when I started to really dig into the world of Vin Scully. What made Vin good? How could he tell a story, still maintain the count, still maintain the out, still maintain the big plays, and yet make it feel like somebody was reading you a story before you were going to bed? Vin was the master of this. Like Vin Scully in those moments dwarfed anything that anybody could do in any sport. And that's what made him so unique. That's what made him the best. Is anybody can be reactive and, you know, somebody gets a hit and somebody can make it sound great and you can have a voice kissed by God. But then usually what most broadcasters do is they bury their head into stats. And Vin never really got into that. Vin wasn't a guy that cared, at least from what I got when I listened to him, he didn't care all that much about the analytic. I mean, every once in a while he would pull up a stat, but more than anything, he would tell you a story or a throwback to a time that maybe he saw Satchel Page do something or something that he saw with, you know, a player from any of the 50 some odd years, 60 some odd years that he covered baseball. And that to me was currency. Like that's what made him so good is he didn't need the crutch of stats. He didn't need the crutch of analytic. He would use it when needed. But it was definitely not something that he had to rely on. He would always trade those stats and analytic for a good story, which to me was something that I aspired to do. I know there's guys out there that didn't like my style. I can live with that because everything that I ever wanted to be when I broadcast and I sat down behind the microphone was to be like Vin Scully. So today really, really stings. I'm going to play you right now his Hall of Fame speech. This is in Cooperstown. This is 1982. He had already done enough by 1982 to get inducted into Cooperstown. I mean, imagine that. He broadcast for 30-some-odd years after he had been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Isn't that something? So anyways, this is his speech. It finishes off with a poem that I have to tell you, man. It's, it's half poem, half story. But it just exemplifies why he was a cut above. He did it. Didn't even look at his papers, looked out at the crowd. Um, it was perfect. Enjoy. Thank you, Ralph. Commissioner, distinguished members of the dais, and ladies and gentlemen. I guess a vital portion of the human existence is when man is visited with misfortune. He invariably will look his eyes to the heavens and say, why me? Why, with the millions and millions of people in this world, am I asked, to carry a cross. And yet, if I'm to be honest with you and with myself today, I have to ask the same question when good fortune comes my way. Why me? Why, with the millions and millions of more deserving people, would a red-haired kid with a hole in his pants and his shirt tail hanging out, playing stickball in the streets of New York, wind up in Cooperstown? Why me indeed? I don't have the answer to either question for either situation, but I do know how I feel. I want to sing, I want to dance, I want to laugh, I want to shout, I want to cry, and I'd like to pray. 
I'd like to pray with humility and with great thanksgiving. I have a lot of thanks to give. I would like to thank my parents. I would like to thank my wonderful wife and children who pay the bill of loneliness and separation while I'm away. I'd like to thank Red Barber and Connie Desmond who cared about that skinny red-headed kid 33 years ago and made sure that he would do reasonably well. I would like to thank my partners today, Jerry Doggett and Ross Porter. I would like to thank the O'Malley family, to Walter and Kay, bless them both, and to Peter and to Terry. I would like to thank the writers who have been more than generous to me over the years. I'd like to thank the Dodgers, both Brooklyn and Los Angeles, and all of the people along the way. And I'd like to conclude with a story. There is a legend in the West of an Indian chief who was wont to test the manhood of his young braves by making them climb up the side of a mountain as far as they could in a single day. And at daybreak on the appointed day, four braves left the village. The first one came back in the late afternoon with a sprig of spruce to show how high he had climbed. Later that afternoon, Another came with a branch of pine, and much later in the day, the third came with an alpine shrub. But it wasn't until late that night, by a full moon with the stars dancing in the heavens, that the fourth brave arrived. What did you bring back? How high did you climb? asked the chief. And the brave said, where I was, there was no spruce nor pine to shield me from the sun. There was no flower to cheer my path. There was only snow and ice and barren rocks and cold, hard ground. My feet are torn and bloodied. I'm worn out and exhausted. I'm barehanded, and I have come home late. But, and then a wondrous look came into his eye, and he said, I saw the sea. For 33 years, the good Lord has allowed me to do what I've always wanted to do, broadcast my favorite game. He has allowed me to climb my mountain. And today, thanks to the Ford C. Frick Award, I thank you for sharing this moment with me, because believe me, today, I saw the sea. Thank you. If you've never heard that speech, uh, I can tell you I've listened to it countless times, and it does not get old. And that really is Vin Scully at his best. In addition to being sincere and thanking everybody, just weaves in these majestic stories. I'm not even ready to say it in past tense. I know he passed away at the age of 94. It's actually been a tough week. If you're a basketball fan or a sports fan, Bill Russell passing away. And now the iconic baseball voice, Vin Scully, who, by the way, didn't do just baseball. You know, one voice that I did not mention early on, Dave Niehaus, down in Seattle, an iconic voice here in the Pacific Northwest. I have to add his name to those who I looked up at, John Miller down in San Francisco, who was good friends with Vin Scully, and uh, I am sure is 
you know, feeling it as well. You know, I don't want to make it all doom and gloom. I'm not here to do an off-the-cuff obituary. But what I want to say is to the younger generation of broadcasters, because the industry is changing so much, and I'm not getting into jobs or pay or anything like that, but it's okay to go back and listen to previous broadcasters from previous generations and pick and pick and pick. You know, for example, even in Vancouver, if you wanted to, Jim Robson, iconic, John Shorthouse, as good as any. And I just look at the people, you know, J.P. McConnell, when it came to the BC Lions, was so good. You know, Vancouver's had a pretty good run of some really, really good voices over the year. I would just say, don't be afraid to go and learn from them. Even Neil McRae, who didn't necessarily do play-by-play, David Pratt. Uh, there are people that deliver so very well. Rick Ball and... Um, I just loved being a student of baseball. I loved listening to others. And I know I wasn't as good as them, and that's okay. I'm not fishing for compliments. If anything, I just, it stays like this where you lean back in your chair and you're just like, man, no matter how hard you paddle, no matter how hard you swim, there are just certain places you can't get to. There are just certain bodies of water that aren't meant for your boat to go to. But it makes me think back to what he must have been like as a kid. You hear in his Hall of Fame speech how he was just this young, red-headed kid and how he ended up becoming, you know, the greatest broadcaster of all time. Like every giant starts as a, you know, seedling, starts as a young kid, and it just must be amazing. Um just to watch that evolve, like what did his mom and dad think? What did his wife think? What did, you know, those who had been around him as their childhood friends think? You know, it just, um, it really is extraordinary. And that's the other thing that I'll do. I'm not going to make this a long podcast. This is going to be a real quick one. I'm going to get to a couple of highlights and just get on my way. But um, we see Vin as this giant, the guy behind the microphone. But, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, going to the refrigerator to get a sip of milk or, you know, what was he like on Christmas morning with his slippers, with his family around him? And, you know, what made Vin laugh? Things like that, because there's so much more to broadcasters than just the sport. I try to tell this to people that will listen to me about baseball players. You know, we get so caught up in the numbers and the stats and left-handers versus right-handers. A lot of people don't remember, well, or maybe just don't think of it, that these guys, for example, ride the bus, or maybe they got in a fight with their girlfriend over the phone the night before. Maybe they miss their family because they've never been away from home. Those are things that count in the game of baseball, and those are the things that Vin didn't let slip underneath. He would tell you stories about these players that made them human and um, was just so special, so, so special. Born in 1927, Vin Scully passes away on the second day of August in the year 2022. Vin was 94. I'm going to play two clips for you, and we're going to wrap it up. I'm going to go back-to-back on these clips. A lot of people remember his call of Kurt Gibson's home run in 1988, obviously, against Dennis Eckersley, one of the greatest calls. He had so many good calls. I mean, I don't have enough time, and I don't think there's enough bandwidth for me to be able to do this, but I'm going to take you to two that resonated with me. One of them, two years before the Gibson home run. It was uh, Mookie Wilson coming to the plate. It was the Red Sox and the Mets. It was 1986, and this is Game 6 that got us to the promised land. Hey, thank you for stopping by and listening to this. Um, He was the greatest broadcaster I had ever heard in my life. And today is a former baseball broadcaster myself. Former is still a weird word for me, even after all this time. Um, I will miss knowing that he is around to tell another story. 
Until you and I do this again very soon, my thanks to everybody over at Equity Guru, Chris Perry, Galen, um, everybody behind the scenes. Thank you for allowing me this platform, even on days where this podcast is uh, a little off the beaten path. Be well and rest in peace, Vin. Because had Mookie hit just a weak ground ball, Barrett was way out of position because they had a good chance to get nine in second base. Can you believe this ball game at Shea? Oh, brother. So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. the fire and all year long he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs the bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee and with two out you talk about a roll of the dice this is it if he hits the ball on the ground I would imagine he would be running 50% to first base. So the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. Fouled away. He was, you know, complaining about the fact that with the left knee bothering him, he can't push off. Well, now he can't push off and he can't land. He's going to use all arms. Look at his crowd on its feet. What a tribute. Four three A's. Two out ninth inning. Not a bad opening act. Mike Davis by the way has stolen seven out of ten. If you're wondering about Lasorda throwing the dice again. And he's standing on an outside corner. He's not going to give him a ball to pull. He, with Davis, he just missed. But here's two quick strikes, both fastballs that kind of tail away the outside part. Hassey is not even flirted with the inside part of that play. You saw Dave Duncan gesturing. He was gesturing to Carney Lansford at third. Oh, and two to Gibson. The infield is back with two out and Davis at first. Now Gibson during the year not necessarily in this spot but he was a threat to bunt. No way tonight no wheels. <laughs> They're plenty deep in the outfield and a lot of room. They're playing him straight away in center field. Look at it right down the line. He's a threat now with two strikes. No balls, two strikes, two out. Little number, foul. And it had to be an effort to run that far. Gibson was so banged up, he was not introduced. He did not come out onto the field before the game. You can really see the limp. Uh, he's not driving that ball. It was by him. 
Let's see, he's really almost, he almost has to talk to his legs and say, hey, let's go, we got to get out of here. It's one thing to favor one leg, but you can't favor two. No way, and that's what he's trying to do. He really is. 0-2 oh to Gibson. Ball one. And a throw down to first. Davis just did get back. Good play by Ron Hassey using Gibson as a screen. He took a shot at the runner and Mike Davis didn't see it for that split second and that made it close. A lot of times what you do you'll give a sign to the first baseman say now be there. They call it now be there play. If I get the ball I'm going to throw it. 14 fastballs in a row. That's all he's been throwing. There goes Davis and it's fouled away. So Mike Davis, who had stolen seven out of ten and carrying the tying run, was on the move. They wanted to give Gibson a good shot at it with two strikes, but with the two strikes, Davis a threat, as we said, because the blue pin will score that big run. Gibson shaking his left leg, making it quiver like a horse trying to get rid of a troublesome fly. Two and two. Mike Sosia can only sit now and sweat it out. He let off the inning and popped up. Tony LaRusa is one out away from win number one. Here's the big pitch. He's got to make it happen on this one. Two balls and two strikes with two out. Those extra steps that Davis will get if the count goes to three and two are very big. So Hassey and Eckersley want that pitch of decision right here. There he goes, way outside. He's stolen it. Hassey started to throw and kind of bumped Gibson, but it was way too late. Davis was way down there, almost as if he could have walked in. Not a bad pitch to handle for Hassey outside. Now watch when he starts to throw. Look at Gibson. And Harvey says, no, no, he had the base stolen. So Mike Davis the tying run is at second base with two out. Now the Dodgers don't need the muscle of Gibson as much as a base hit and on deck is the leadoff man Steve Sachs. Three and two. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone.
in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened.